From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Friday, September 29th, 2023. You're listening to a special holiday edition of the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China's celebrating mid-autumn festivals to start an eight-day holiday period that also includes National Day. A Chinese players taking the women's singles tennis title at the Hangzhou Asian Games, which are ongoing through the holiday. Armenian officials say half of the residents of a disputed region have fled the area, and China's Chang'e 6 mission is set for launch next year. In the second half of the program, we'll bring you uh, the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. Now checking the day's top stories. Well, Friday is China's Mid-Autumn Festival, a holiday famous for family reunions. It also marks the beginning of an eight-day holiday period that also includes National Day. Travelers made more than 15 million railway trips on Thursday as they went back to their hometowns or on holidays. This time of the year is when people can take the longest break and the only time to travel for fun. We make full use of a one-day tour. We don't sleep overnight in the destinations to save money. We take the morning train to a destination and visit as many sightseeing spots as possible and return at night. China is expecting a peak of more than 20 million railway passenger trips on Friday. The railway and air travel networks have increased the number of trains and flights. Uh, one traditional food for the Mid-Autumn Festival is, of course, the mooncake. The market for this dessert is showing new trends, and Luceray has more. As an important traditional festival food, mooncakes have shown a trend of diversification in recent years, uh, with both traditional and innovative flavors gaining the attention and 
favor of various consumers. And from the perspective of consumer purchasing intentions, uh, diversification of flavors and product upgrades are the main factors driving the growth in mooncake sales this year. And data shows that 28% of consumers said they have spent more mooncakes this year compared to last year. And with more variety in mooncake flavors accounting for nearly 40%, uh, of the reasons for increased purchases. That was Lu Serey on the mooncake economy in China. Industrial data estimates an 8% increase in mooncake sales during this year's mid-autumn festival. Shoppers lined up outside of a bakery chain store in Shanghai days before the holiday. To boost sales, the pastry brand partnered with different firms to gain popularity with younger consumers. Uh, Yuan Jie is the deputy manager of the Xinhua Lo flagship store. We are cross-marketing with Ovaltine, the Dunhuang Museum, and Arcanites this year. The mooncake sold out within just half a month. The Arcanites mooncake gift boxes were snatched up in just a week. As a time-honored brand, we want to attract the attention of the younger generation and create a new brand image. Through years of development, mooncake options have varied from sweet to salty and from low-fat to extra yolk. According to the China Association of Bakery and Confectionery Industry, uh, an extra 450,000 tons of mooncakes available across the country this year, generating a market of 26.3 billion yuan, or roughly 3.6 billion U.S. dollars. Meantime, the tourism market and hospitality industry are gearing up for a fresh wave of holidaymakers. Uh, Jian Chung at Beijing-based travel agency Liao Renyo says they have received more orders uh, than on the National Day holiday of 2019. The domestic travel bookings we received for this upcoming holiday is far beyond what we had in the same period in 2019. Now much of the high-speed train tickets have sold out. In general, domestic travel for sure resumed first. Well, travel agencies are offering customized travel services for small groups of families and friends, and that's a new trend this year. Outbound travel orders also increase nearly 20 times compared to this time last year. Popular destinations include Thailand, Singapore and Malaysia, as well as further destinations such as Australia and the United Kingdom. Organizers of the Asian Games in Hangzhou have invited participants on a boat ride on the iconic West Lake to celebrate the Mid-Autumn Festival. They enjoyed mooncakes and learned about traditional Chinese culture during the trip at the UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, Tengar TV CEO Andral Amar Saihan uh, says he enjoyed the experience under a full moon. The view and atmosphere is uh, yeah, it's so exciting to witness uh, this uh, uh, great spot very popular among, uh, uh, I think, uh, all the travelers here. Now, Westlake has become a popular spot among athletes, officials, and delegates at the Asian Games. And it was the starting point of the torch relay. More from the games in Hangzhou, Zheng Chinwen beat Zhu Lin in straight sets to win the women's tennis singles title. Zheng's now 23rd in the world after the match. She was a career high of 19th back in May, though. Uh, the win also means Zheng's qualified for the Paris Olympics. This is the fifth consecutive women's singles title for China at the Asian Games. In the men's singles final, China's Zheng Zhijian will play against Japan's Yosuka Watanuki on Saturday.
In the 20-kilometer race walk, Chinese athletes sealed the men's and women's titles. Zhang Jun won the men's title with 1 hour and 23 minutes, while Yang Jiayu claimed the women's title in 1 hour 30 minutes and 3 seconds. For more on the Asian Games, we're joined live now with uh, Yang Guang. Uh, good evening, and first up, uh, China secured the gold and silver medals in women's singles tennis at the Asian Games. Uh, so please tell us more about those matches. Yeah, it was an all-Chinese final in the women's singles title decider. Top seed Chen Qingwen ended up the winner by beating second seed Zhu Lin. Chen Qingwen looked more confident going into the final and didn't waste time at all to bring on her powerful serving and iconic forehand strokes. Zhu Lin, on the other hand, suffered from a, sl- a slow start and conceded the first set easily. Uh, she managed to improve her game in the second set and looked on her way to level the score, but... On some key points, she either rushed to her shots or got affected by the umpire's decision. Zhu Ling wasn't in her best form in serving as well. Jin uh, Qingwen took a straight set victory, 6-2, 6-4. It was a happy moment for Zhang, but she has little time to celebrate because she will soon go to Beijing for the China Open. It was a very tight schedule. And she also revealed after the final that she has parted ways with coach Wim Fisati who decided to end their contract and the coach Naomi Osaka instead. Zhang Qingwen said the decision harmed her, but she respected it. So I guess there are some mixed feelings for Zhang Qingwen right now, but the gold medal at the Asian Games is definitely a good start for a new journey ahead. Shane? Well, it's Mid-Autumn Festival today, of course, and uh, so are there any festive elements that you've noticed at the Games? Well, yeah. First of all, we definitely felt that there were more spectators going to the Games as it's the first day of an eight-day holiday period. The tennis arena was packed with people, some of them dressed in traditional Chinese costumes. It certainly added the festive vibe to the Games atmosphere. Organizers said um, to meet the high demand for Asian Games tickets, they would release another 300,000 tickets for different venues. Clearly, going to watch the Asian Games becomes one of the major leisure options for people in Hangzhou and neighboring cities on this mid-autumn festival. Well, at the Asian Games Village, the festival is also celebrated with some special arrangements. The dining halls of the Media Village and Athletes Village have offered festival specials for participants from different countries and regions, including Mooncake, of course. There's also a fair where athletes can try out ancient Chinese costumes, play traditional Chinese sports, and enjoy street shows on this special occasion. There's also a giant rabbit um, decoration at the corner of the streets, which many games participants take photos with. Volunteers also kindly send gifts and the festival greeting notes to our rooms. It's um, it's a really nice and warm gesture for all of us. So yeah, the Hangzhou Asian Games is not all about the intense sports competitions. It also brings people together and they embrace diversity. We definitely found it at the Asian Games on this meetup and festival. Back to Shane. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang reporting from Hangzhou at the Asian Games. Coming up, ethnic Armenians continue to flee Nagorno-Karabakh. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. 
at 10 minutes past the hour. Armenian officials say more than half of the 120,000 residents in Nagorno-Karabakh have left that disputed region. The region says the unrecognized republic will cease to exist by the end of this year. Azerbaijan launched an offensive last week to consolidate its control of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is internationally recognized as belonging to Azerbaijan, even though it's home to mostly ethnic Armenians. Yellow Abdefit has more. Armenians leaving their homes in the Nagorno-Karabakh region are creating a humanitarian headache for the authorities and aid agencies. Goris, just inside the Armenian border, is filling up. Young and old are arriving with whatever they can carry. Reports indicate that more than half of the reported 120,000 ethnic Armenians who lived in the enclave have left. Analysis of the situation shows that in the coming days there will be no Armenians left in Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan's authorities have released video footage of the Armenian separatist leader. Ruben Vardanian has been arrested and is charged with financing terrorism. In the calm of the Azeri capital Baku, some say Armenians can stay in the country if they respect the state law. They are leaving the country. They are leaving by themselves. Our country isn't making them leave. If they obey the rules and the constitution, they can stay. Russia's defense ministry says its soldiers have completed the evacuation of those injured in a fuel tank explosion. Armenian officials are still trying to find more than 100 people who are reported to be missing after the blast on Monday. At least 68 people are believed to have died. Back in Goris, other Armenians are arriving to assist where they can. I came from the city of Stavropol, where I saw what is happening here. I came to help my people however I can. I came to stand with my people and help them. He's a Russian citizen which has the world's largest Armenian diaspora. The Armenian government in Yerevan says it has prepared emergency housing for 40,000 people from Nagorno-Karabakh. But with more than 70,000 having already left the enclave, it may not be enough. That was Yellow App Defid reporting. U.S. House Republicans have opened the first impeachment inquiry hearing against Democratic President Joe Biden. comes weeks after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made the call. Republicans have accused Biden of trading on the power of his office when he served as vice president to help his son Hunter Biden secure lucrative foreign business deals and of benefiting personally from uh, corruption. The chair of the House of Representatives Oversight Committee says Biden's lied about family business dealings. Democrats say there is no evidence that Biden received any payments or had involvement in his son's business ventures. The White House also uh, rejected the assertion, issuing a 15-page memo refuting Republican allegations. China's deputy permanent representative to the United Nations is calling on European countries to protect the human rights of refugees and fulfill commitments to the development of North African countries. Dai Bing was speaking at a, at a United Nations Security Council meeting on the Mediterranean refugee issue. European countries should effectively implement government assistance for development, help source countries of refugees develop their economies and improve livelihoods, completely eliminate the root causes of migration, 
and ultimately create conditions for refugees and migrants to return home. According to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, in the first eight months of the year, over 100,000 refugees and migrants attempted to cross the central Mediterranean Sea from Tunisia to Europe, a yearly increase of 260 percent. The UN organization says also the numbers of refugees heading to Europe from Libya, Algeria and other places also increased. By September 24th, more than 2,500 refugees had died or disappeared, an increase of over 66 percent compared to the same period last year. Glaciers in the Swiss and Austrian Alps are shrinking dramatically. In Switzerland, the glacier volumes dropped 10% within two years. Authorities warned that the retreating ice will transform the landscape and economy. Johannes Pleschberger reports. Webcam images of Switzerland's Ron Glacier show the dramatic acceleration of the melting ice. In just two years, Swiss glacier volume has gone down as much as in the three whole decades before 1990. Smaller glaciers, such as Sankt Anafirn, completely vanished this summer, and due to high temperatures and low snowfall, the Alps will be ice-free much sooner than expected. It's not only Switzerland that has seen an extreme glacier retreat this year. Neighboring Austria has experienced the same issue, and scientists here at Vienna's Geosphere Austria Agency are trying to understand the consequences this could have for Europe. So the consequences of the extreme glacier retreat um, are not uh, the water supply, because in Austria and also in the Alps, water supply is more dependent on the snow cover, on the seasonal snow cover. But of course, the landscape will transform. Skiing resorts in, on glaciers might also be affected because of infrastructure problems due to the glacier retreat. Austria's longest glacier, the Basterze, attracts about a million visitors per year, but there is less and less of it to see. This um, connection between the tongue and the upper part is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and this you can see year by year. And actually it's just a matter of time until this vanishes, and this is quite emotional on the one hand, because then the, the tongue is cut off from the feeding of the glacier more or less. But on the other hand, it's still amazing how much ice is there and the cracks and it's still a nice environment to work in. Austria's Academy of Sciences warns that the country's glaciers will be gone by 2050, half a century earlier than previously expected. That was Johannes Pleschberger reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, China's Chang'e 6 mission is set for launch next year. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. At 17 minutes past the hour. Well, China's space agencies announced that its Chang'e 6 lunar mission is well underway and is set to launch around 2024. The National Space Administration says Chang'e 6's aim is to explore the far side of the moon, unlike previous lunar missions which more focused on the near side. China is also set to launch a relay communications satellite in the first half of 2024 to ensure seamless communication with the lunar spacecraft. Chang'e 6 will involve international collaboration as it'll carry payloads and satellite projects from France, the European Space Agency, Italy, and Pakistan. 
Skilled professionals with hands-on experience are in high demand as emerging sectors such as autonomous driving are booming in China. To meet the demand, vocational schools are teaming up with tech companies to cultivate young talents uh, for the country's booming high-tech manufacturing sector. Guayan spoke with students, teachers and staff of an internet giant at a top vocational school in Beijing. 19-year-old Zhang Zihui and his classmate Li Ye are majoring in smart vehicle manufacturing at Beijing Polytechnic. They believe the rapid development of smart cars will generate more job opportunities in the future. Job prospects were my top concern when choosing a major. Luckily, I found that the skills I learned in my first year at the school, such as computer programming, will be very useful for my future career. Artificial intelligence will play a bigger role in our society, and we will see robots replacing human labor in many industries. Robotic machines like driverless cars will make our lives easier in the future. We are the first class of this major. I like new and innovative things. The outlook for this sector is promising. However, it's clear that I need to put in a lot of effort to constantly improve my skills, and the courses are more difficult than I expected. Unlike the traditional generation of blue-collar workers with skills such as assembling and repairing cars, future engineers are expected to have good command of computer programming and remote sensing techniques aside from basic knowledge of auto manufacturing. The vocational school in Yizhuang district, which is a main hub for autonomous driving in China, has teamed up with the tech giant's autonomous driving division to train more talents in the field. Xie Heng is a manager of the Intelligent Vehicle Division at Baidu. The tech company's Apollo Park in Beijing's Yizhuang Economic Development Zone houses 300 self-driving vehicles. The Chinese internet giant has built what it claims to be the world's largest testing ground for autonomous driving and smart vehicle systems. The school is one of the talent bases for the company's driverless car project. Baidu and the school have teamed up to create courses that focus on teaching the students the ins and outs of Apollo's autonomous driving platform. Upon graduation, students will have the opportunity to work for Baidu, our suppliers or manufacturers in the industrial chain. More autonomous driving projects will be launched in the future, and there will be a demand for more workers with advanced vocational skills. Chen Junjie is a teacher of automotive technology at the school. He says deep cooperation with tech firms helps future engineers keep up with the latest trends. With the rapid upgrading of auto manufacturing, we need to acquire new knowledge such as cloud computing and big data to adapt to this trend as soon as possible. Many of our teachers will spend half a year working in industry through our cooperation with companies. They will learn first-hand techniques of the industry and then teach that to our students. Data shows that Beijing has nearly 3.8 million skilled workers, with 3% of them are equipped with advanced skills. The capital city aims to raise the proportion to 35% by the end of 2025. Chen has committed himself to vocational education for nearly a decade. He has his own observation on cultivating skilled workers on the backdrop of the ever-changing landscape of China's manufacturing industry. Vocational education has developed rapidly over the past few years as the country has increased investment in this area.
Talents with hands-on skills that are adaptable to advanced industries now have good job opportunities and salaries. This has gradually broken the stereotype that vocational education graduates are not as competent as their counterparts who are good at academic studies. He adds that these efforts will help cultivate more skilled workers equipped with advanced techniques that meet the demand of the country's booming high-tech manufacturing sector. For the Beijing Hour, this is Guo Yan. Data shows that foreign enterprises operating in China continue to hold high expectations for the country's ever-growing talent market, which is seen as a key driver of its economic growth. Tian Yu spoke with the CEO of a French company in China to discuss the potential benefits that an increasing number of high-caliber talents can bring to the country's economy. Publicis Group is a French multinational advertising and public relations company. It's also one of the largest communications groups in the world, operating in the Chinese market for over 20 years. Asia Pacific CEO Jingling Baden says they are witnessing a growing number of high-quality talents in China. And we are seeing a lot of high-quality talents across all sectors in China today, and that's why we have a, a very solid ground to acquire top talents. So, at the Publicis Group, we believe in finding the most fitting talents. To serve our clients, and most often those best options for our clients are local talent. So localization in talent structure and strategy is incredibly important for us. That provides us with a very strong competitive advantage to outperform other international competitors. China is home to over 240 million people who have received higher education, making it one of the largest talent markets in the world. Lin Baden also shares what kinds of traits and abilities they are looking for when recruiting employees. For us, there are a couple of things that are very important.、Uh, number one, we need talent. They have ambition and drive, and that can carry us to continue to be leader in our industry. And particularly in China, it's highly competitive market, so we need our talents to be very ambitious. And this is also why I believe that how we behave as a leader. Of the communication in our industry, we need to continue to drive success for our clients.、Right? So the local talents I'm seeing、uh, we have in in the China market today, their agility, their growth ambition, and also innovative spirit, and also you know that type of、uh, frontier know-how in technology, those are all critical、uh, metrics and also、uh, traits we see、uh, important for our business. And they are highly suitable for a fast-paced and ever-changing market. In recent years, China has been ramping up its investment in education, science, and technology. Data from the Ministry of Education shows the budgets of over 20 Chinese universities have reached over 10 billion yuan, or over 1.4 billion U.S. dollars. Lin Baden says she's upbeat about China's prospects for high-quality development with its increasing investment in key sectors and its growing talent market. Well, I think from today you you can already clearly see that China's science and technology education investment is definitely paying off.、Uh, take the media landscape、uh, example. This is the industry we operate. Chinese、uh, digital platforms and creative commerce、uh, revolution. Has really disrupted、uh, the global consumer behaviors、uh, pattern, and also it creates a quite a stir、uh, internationally. But that also makes our local practitioners very unique specialists 
uh, from, you know, in the world. If we think about the talents that the world is starting after, I think the Chinese practitioners uh, really are high, in high demand. As part of its development objectives for 2035, China has emphasized the need to train and develop more high-caliber professionals. The country is looking to capitalize on its rapidly expanding talent market to drive economic growth and create new opportunities for development. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Tian Yu. At 26 minutes past the hour, Hawaii's top public utility officials and Hawaiian Electric have testified in a congressional hearing about the role the electrical grid played in last month's deadly Maui wildfire. Members of a U.S. House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee questioned whether the grid in Lahaina was safe and properly maintained. Uh, the fire killed at least 97 people and destroyed more than 2,000 buildings, mostly homes. Hawaiian Electric CEO uh, Shelly Kamura says they are cooperating with investigators to find out what happened. The cause of that afternoon fire that spread to Lahaina has not been determined. We are working tirelessly to figure out what happened, and we are cooperating fully with federal and state investigators who have indicated it may take 12 to 18 months to conclude. The standard is on Maui is, it, is for lines to be overhead. A customer can opt to have it undergrounded, they have to pay for that undergrounding. It is very expensive. The um, uh, Kimura told the committee that uh, they had assessed 29,000 poles on the island, but they'd not yet checked the remaining 2,000 since 2013. Uh, Those poles needed to be tested or treated for possible termites, rot, or other problems. The World Heart Federation says heart disease is still the number one killer in every region of the globe. However, the experts say that most cardiovascular disease is preventable. Experts say some risk factors for cardiovascular disease have increased, such as obesity and diabetes. Uh, They believe public health policies are needed to encourage healthier lifestyles. The Federation also says doctors have become skilled at finding new treatments and developments, or rather finding new treatments and developments in medical devices which enable people to survive longer. We're at 28 minutes past the hour. That wraps up this special edition of the Beijing Hour, making news today. Uh, China's celebrating Mid-Autumn Festival to start an eight-day holiday period that also includes National Day. A Chinese player has taken the women's singles title at the Hangzhou Asian Games, which are ongoing through the holiday. And Armenian officials say half of the residents of a disputed region have fled the area. Starting from today, we'll bring you the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. In this first part, we'll hear stories about his strategic thinking and economic and social development and how the plans were carried through to completion. We'll also explore the president's firm belief in the power of innovation and uh, how he's created strength for China to achieve greater self-reliance in science and technology. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Experience the musical classics of the East. 
mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German Railway Company Director of the International United Nations Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you are a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点 or a sophisticated learner. 我来北京五年了，我是本地人 There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好 Welcome to Stories of Xi Jinping, a podcast series sharing decades of Xi Jinping's work experiences at different levels of government across China, to find out how his leadership and thinking on governance gradually took shape. One day in March of 1982, 28-year-old Xi Jinping left Beijing for Zhengding County in North China's Hebei Province. To start his position as deputy secretary of the Communist Party of China, Zhengding County Committee. Zhengding neighbors Shijiazhuang, the provincial capital of Hebei. The two separated merely by a river. Zhengding used to be a town of strategic importance in North China in the ancient times. Zhengding had good harvests in early 1980s, but was still very poor, with farmers struggling near the poverty line. Agriculture for the county consisted mainly of grain production, leaving little room for forestry, husbandry, and others. Limited farmland spread over a big population left local residents with meager incomes. Many lived below the poverty line with barely enough for food and clothing. In 1981, annual per capita income of the county hovered over 140 yuan. Which meant 0.4 yuan or 0.23 dollars per person per day. Xi Jinping was deeply concerned. Boosting the county's economic growth and raising people's living standards became Xi's top priority. Xi traveled across the county to collect first-hand information in an effort to formulate a development plan suitable to the place. She discovered that Zhengding enjoyed a favorable location, sitting close to Shijiazhuang, which is a relatively big city in the region. It could develop a commodity economy and promote a model that would integrate agriculture, industry, and commerce, thereby greatly expanding its economic potential. In 1984, she formulated for Zhengding a semi-suburban economic model based on this strategic outlook. 
The key was for Zhending to take advantage of his location between urban and rural areas to grow, process, and provide all that Shijiazhuang needed, so as to develop his own economy and improve local earnings. This economic model broke the boundary of people's thinking at the time and helped local residents find a feasible way to shake up poverty and grow rich. It also promoted coordinated development of the urban and rural areas. After that, Zhending intensified his efforts in branching out his economy and diversifying his industries. Local farmers began knocking on the doors of urban markets with their labor and agricultural products. In 1984, Zhending's gross industrial and agricultural production and farmers' per capita income all doubled from figures in 1980. The county started to take off on a growth trajectory with its own characteristics. Li Yaping, who worked with Xi in the CPC Zhending County Committee, recalls the following: The semi-suburban economic model soon won acknowledgement by the people of Zhengding. Everyone seemed to be enlightened. Before that, we knew only of growing grains, but since then, we realized we should serve the city of Shijiazhuang since we were close by. When working out tough problems facing the economic development of Zhengding County, Xi Jinping aimed not only to solve specific problems but also to tackle deeper challenges and establish a well-structured and balanced economy, which boosted the overall growth of the county. He was not confined by short-term challenges but maintained a long-term perspective at the same time. This represents Xi's strategic thinking with a big picture in mind. Xi Jinping is keen on thinking and planning in advance, with trends and directions of the times in mind, so as to set strategic targets for economic and social development and decide on concrete steps to be taken. In June 1985, Xi left Zhengding for Xiamen City in southeast China's Fujian Province, where he would serve as the deputy mayor. The first day on the job happened to be his 32nd birthday. Dinner that night included local specialties such as oyster omelette, stir-fried noodles, and seaworm jelly. It was an unforgettable birthday with exotic local delicacies. Also unforgettable for Xi were the dilapidated buildings and poor lighting along the narrow and dirty streets of the city. She said this was not the garden in the sea, as Xiamen was nicknamed, that he had in mind. Xiamen was already one of the first batch of four special economic zones in China at that time. To help Xiamen accommodate the expanding special economic zone and to explore the possibility of free port policy, she formulated a strategy for the future of Xiamen. In a year and a half, she organized various field research, solicited opinions from Xiamen residents, and visited economists in Beijing. All these efforts came together in an economic and social development plan for Xiamen from 1985 to 2000. This was the earliest such plans by a local government in China that spanned 15 years. Chen Jingmu, then deputy head of the municipal planning committee of Xiamen, 
recalls that a strategy for development proposed by Xi was a new word at the time, representing his outstanding ability to think forward. The local authorities had long been making five-year plans and annual plans, but had never made strategies for development. And people rarely gave much thought about strategies in the special economic zone. In Zheng's opinion, it was extraordinary to just come up with such a term as strategy for development. This plan covered various areas, including economic and social development for Xiamen for the next 15 years, positioning of the city. Growth of industries, the free port model, financial system in the special economic zone, ecological environment, and others. Xiamen, once a lonely small island city, started its rapid rise. After that, she left Xiamen for Fuzhou, the provincial capital of Fujian Province, to take up a new post. In Fuzhou, she made three-year, eight-year, and twenty-year economic and social development plans for the city. He designed plans for Fuzhou to transform from a city that relied on the river to one that reached the sea, and to build a golden triangle economic circle at Mingjiang Estuary, among others. With stable, medium, and long-term plans in place, infrastructure projects such as international airports, highways, deep-sea harbors, and electricity facilities were launched in Fuzhou one after another. Enterprises from Taiwan and overseas began to invest in the city, while multiple types of development zones advanced simultaneously. During Xi's six-year tenure in Fuzhou, the city's gross production rose at an annual rate of 20% on average, and the impact also reached other non-coastal areas. Such coordinated development boosted the rapid economic growth of the whole province. Xi's colleague once made such remarks regarding his ability for strategic planning. When analyzing the development of an area or a city, Xi is aware of both the present and the future. He's a strategist with vision and long-term missions, and is able to coordinate and take command of the overall situation in view of the overarching trend. Xi Jinping once said that correct strategic assessment, sound planning, and concrete actions create good prospect for economic and social development. The two blueprints he drew for Xiamen and Fuzhou have already turned into reality in the ensuing decades. Today, Xiamen is not only an ecological city with pretty gardens and charming landscapes, but also a city of entrepreneurship and innovation. New economy and new industries have been developing rapidly. Trade and investment have kept up, and sea, land, and air transportation can now reach all parts of the world. Fuzhou, a city of water and mountains, saw its total economic output surpassing one trillion yuan or 150 billion U.S. dollars in 2020, ranking at the top of Fujian Province in 2021. An ancient Chinese saying goes: If one does not have the big picture in mind, he can't very well govern a single area. If one does not plan for the long term, he won't have a clue for a brief period of time.
Xi Jinping's strategic thinking is demonstrated in his ability to think in big-picture terms, look into the future, and grasp the overall situation. In over two decades' time, from holding offices in East China's Zhejiang Province and Shanghai to becoming the national leader, Xi made arrangements in person to further the integrated development of the Yangtze River Delta region, making it a national strategy. The move created a source of robust growth and high-quality development, setting a fine example for the rest of the country. The Yangtze River Delta is an alluvial plain near the estuary of the Yangtze River. Economically competitive cities in Shanghai, Jiangsu, and Zhejiang are all located in this region. This region, while accounting for about two percent of the country's land mass and ten percent of the total population, contributed to more than twenty percent of the country's total GDP in 2001. Xi was keenly aware of the strategic importance of the Yangtze River Delta. It could become an experimental plot in China's quest for modernization, and also a growth engine boosting China's national composite strength and global economic competitiveness. At the end of 2002, after Xi became secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee, he made the following prediction for the future of the Yangtze River Delta. The Yangtze River Delta is a highlight of the Chinese economy, in much the same way as China is a highlight of the world economy. At the beginning of 2003, Xi proposed that Zhejiang Province should take the initiative to align its development with that of Shanghai and play a bigger role in the Yangtze River Delta region. In a media interview, he said, "Only by grasping the historic opportunities can actions lead to strategic results." After that, considering Zhejiang's great advantage in location, the following arrangements were made. With Hangzhou Bay Area in lead, Zhejiang took the initiative to align itself with Shanghai and conducted cooperation in various areas, including infrastructure construction, information technology, industrial division of labor, development and utilization of energy, and environmental protection, so as to advance the integrated development of the Yangtze River Delta region. The year of 2003 thus marked the first year of integrated development of the Yangtze River Delta region. Xi continued to promote these arrangements even after he left Zhejiang for Shanghai for his new post. Having in mind the regional and national development strategy, he proposed the incorporation of Shanghai into the planning of the whole Yangtze River Delta. Xi Jinping said. For Shanghai, serving the Yangtze River Delta is the first step in serving the region and the whole country. It's a must if it is to strengthen its role as a regional economic hub, a growth engine in the national economy, and a flagship in international competition. After more than 10 years of development, the Yangtze River Delta has become one of the most vibrant, open, and innovative regions in China. In his keynote speech at the opening ceremony of the first China International Import Expo in 2018, Xi Jinping announced that the country had elevated the integrated development of the Yangtze River Delta region to a national strategy.
Cities including Shanghai and those from Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and Anhui are moving together to form a world-class city cluster. The Yangtze River Delta region, through integration of competitive advantages, has become a strategic spot both in domestic economic flows and in exchanges with overseas markets. This has led to a new pattern for China's high-quality development. As China's top leader, Xi Jinping has always implemented his governing philosophy in the form of national strategies. Over the years, as Xi served in various posts, his strategic perspective never stopped after the planning, but ran through all the way to completion. This is CGTN Radio. Eastern 919, we are pleased to welcome the first C919 flight in China's history of civil aviation. China's homegrown large jetliner will fly high. Copy Control Tower, C919 is a great ride. We'll take good care of it at Eastern Airlines. At 11.59 a.m. on December 9th, 2022, the C919 aircraft that took off from Shanghai Pudong International Airport arrived smoothly at Shanghai Hongqiao International Airport. After being showered with a water salute ceremony, the highest level of etiquette in civil aviation, the aircraft was officially delivered to China Eastern Airlines, its first operator worldwide. After generations of hard work, China's civil aviation industry welcomed the country's first self-developed trunk jetliner. Xi Jinping extended his congratulations promptly and encouraged the project team to keep up their efforts in making greater breakthroughs in core technology. Xi Jinping has long been concerned with bottlenecks in core technology in key fields. He remarked on many occasions that efforts and resources should be concentrated on original and pioneering research and development to attain self-reliance and strength in key fields. The attention and support he has afforded for independent R&D in China's civil aviation over the years demonstrate his commitment. In 2007, when Xi Jinping was secretary of the CPC Shanghai Municipal Committee, China's first regional jetliner ARJ-21 with fully independent intellectual property rights entered the critical phase of assembly. This was one of the national-level innovation projects. She went to the Shanghai Aircraft Manufacturing Factory to show his support to the ARJ-21 project team. He said, The project bears the trust of our country and our people and represents a historic step in the development of China's civil aircraft industry. Trust from Xi Jinping greatly boosted the morale of the team. Prior to that, China had gone through a painstaking journey lasting decades in researching and building its homegrown civil aircraft, despite frequent failures and setbacks. The light could finally be seen at the end of the tunnel. In 2008, the test flight of ARJ-21 was a success, which opened a new chapter in China's civil aircraft industry. 
The same year, Shanghai Aircraft Manufacturing Factory became a subsidiary of the newly founded Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China, Cormac, and began participating in the R&D on the C919 aircraft. However, such endeavors are never smooth. In May of 2014, the C919 team had a hard time finishing up its assembly and couldn't deliver on schedule. She went to the research and development center of Cormac in Shanghai to show his support. He asked the pilots about test flights and boarded the C919 display prototype. He went in the cockpit and the passenger cabin to get a better understanding of the aircraft's design. Expressing his high hopes for the team, Xi Jinping said, "China's aircraft manufacturing industry has been through an arduous journey." We've taken the first step, and it's been a great start with strong momentum. She encouraged the team to keep taking solid steps forward, saying that China must have progress in the equipment manufacturing industry, and the country must have its own large aircraft. His visit meant a lot to the people on site. Wu Guanghui, chief designer of the C919 and academician with Chinese Academy of Engineering, recalled, "Xi Jinping showed us the direction. We must strengthen our own equipment manufacturing industry. China must have its homegrown large jetliner. We were so inspired by his words." It took 15 years for the homegrown aircraft C919 to go from receiving approval for development in 2007 to completing its successful maiden flight in 2017, and finally to obtaining type certification from the Civil Aviation Administration of China in 2022. In this process, Chinese people fulfilled the dream of developing their own large aircraft. And found the path to independent innovation for China's aviation industry. Xi Jinping often stresses the role of talent in driving innovation, saying a wealth of talent is vital to the success of a great cause. He believes in the power of great talent and has shown great support, especially for young talent in science and technology. He dares young people to play leading roles and take greater responsibilities, in an effort to enlarge and strengthen the country's talent pool in science and technology. When serving as secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee, she was affectionately referred to as the chief obstacle buster by scientific and technological workers. In November 2005. Xi Jinping received a letter from Dr. Ding Liaming, a PhD graduate who returned to China from abroad and led a team in developing new drugs for lung cancer. Dr. Ding and his team were based in Hangzhou City. For the previous three years, they had overcome numerous obstacles before finally completing preclinical research on a new targeted therapy drug. After submitting the application for clinical tests to the relevant department, however, Ding did not receive any reply. Given how vital the new anti-cancer drug was to patients, Dr. Ding thought of writing directly to Xi Jinping. 
Dr. Ding said in his letter. We are developing a new generation of anti-cancer targeted therapy drug, which is self-developed and owns independent intellectual property rights. It is also the ideal drug that many cancer patients here in China are waiting for. Similar products from abroad have entered the Chinese market, but their high prices have frustrated most patients. The letter carried every last thread of hope of Dr. Ding and his team. To their surprise, they received a reply from Xi in just five days. Upon receiving Dr. Ding's letter, she immediately instructed relevant departments to speed up the review process of the new drug and to accommodate the needs of the research team. Seven months later, in June of 2006, the new drug Comana was approved for clinical trials. This was China's first self-developed small molecular targeted anti-tumor drug. Comana was officially put on the retail market in August 2011. It proved to be more effective than its foreign counterparts and was sold at only around 60% of their price. Over the years, Xi Jinping constantly underscored the role of talent in enhancing China's innovation capacity. He says talent is the primary resource of growth and those who own world-class innovative talent will have the advantage in leading sci-tech innovation and strength in science and technology leads to the prosperity of a nation and great talent leads to the building of a strong country. In promoting innovation, Xi Jinping pays great attention to removing barriers for enterprises through institutional reform to inspire greater creativity. This in turn speeds up the commercialization and industrialization of scientific and technological findings. In May 2001, as governor of southeast China's Fujian province, Xi Jinping inspected the Mawei shipbuilding factory in Fuzhou, the provincial capital. The factory has a history spanning over a century and was once a major exporter of ships. But at that time, the factory was struggling due to outdated management and lack of funding for equipment and technology upgrade. With external impacts such as the financial crisis, the factory was on the verge of bankruptcy and its top-class experts were leaving one after another. Mawei Shipbuilding could hardly get any new orders and was struggling with building and delivering ships. Hearing of the factory's difficulty, she put forth the idea of diversifying its channels of financing and casting off its debts in order to move forward. The idea helped this old state-owned enterprise find a way out, a joint stock reform. As this century-old factory revived with fresh energy, she put forward a new goal for the factory, that is, to take the initiative for technological innovation. On a Sunday in June 2002, a 700 TEU container ship manufactured by Mawei Shipbuilding was about to be delivered to Germany. She was invited to the scene for inspection. She arrived early in the morning and took a careful inspection of the ship, from the bottom compartment to the cabin and the captain's quarters. 
He chatted with Xie Zhuoming, then general manager of Fujian Shipbuilding Industry Group. What percentage of the parts for this ship was made domestically? The main equipment and the navigation system were still imported. If we want to really develop our shipbuilding industry, we need to focus more on improving our technology instead of just doing hard labor. We should set our goals on high-grade precision and developed products, and rely on ourselves more concerning SciTech innovation. That was a reenactment of the conversation based on published works. Xi's remarks highlighted the direction of development through innovation. At the 2006 SMM Hamburg in Germany, which was a leading international trade fair in the maritime industry, container ships produced by Maui Shipbuilding were regarded as benchmark products. In the years after that, the factory continuously expanded its investment in R&D. Ranging from building basic vessels to manufacturing ocean engineering equipment, it also branched into new areas such as building high-end diving support and construction vessels and manufacturing facilities for deep-sea fishing. After decades of development, the factory has become a pioneer in manufacturing high-end equipment. Xi Jinping believes in the power of innovation as the primary driving force for development. He says, "To innovate is to develop, and to plan for innovation is to plan for the future." As the Chinese economy upgrades from rapid expansion to high-quality development, Xi Jinping says innovation will remain at the heart of China's modernization drive.